Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Uh, we are beginning a series actually this weekend, a two-part series called, as you see here in the graphic, Going Public. Um, and in this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be uh, taking a little bit of a deeper dive, no pun intended, to baptism. And so uh, you may find this weird or strange, but I am actually super pumped. Not like some pump, that's not another pun, but um, super pumped for this series. Um, and that might seem a little strange, but... Actually, the, one of the reasons why I'm really like jazzed up for the series is with uh, how it uh, dovetails or syncs up really well with the series that we just came out of last week. Uh, so we, we've been in a series for about six weeks that we closed down last week called This is Grace. <clears throat> and throughout that series, we had been really entertaining this one, one, big, uh, one big statement uh, and unpacking that statement throughout the series. And it was basically this. It was that grace, meaning God's favor toward us as human beings, that grace is not a concept to be understood cognitively or mentally, but it is a reality that is to be experienced. So as we think about this and how it syncs up with baptism, <clears throat> a lot of times what we find in, in the Bible with this idea of God's grace is that the Bible seems to say that when a person encounters the grace of God and comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible repeatedly says that that person is born again or born anew. They experience a kind of, a kind of new birth. So much the same as it is physically with a baby, it's kind of the same way spiritually. So if you think about when a baby is born, um, they require a lot, of out, a lot of outside help and assistance for sustenance to get by. And the same really is true spiritually speaking, and that's why I think that the Bible so often uses this metaphor of birth, of birth to describe this uh, coming to know or experience the grace of God in the person of Jesus. So pretty much when we first come to know Jesus, um, we rely on him for pretty much everything, pretty much everything. Um, what we do contribute is probably like the equivalent of wetting ourselves, the equivalent of, you know, waking mom and dad up at three in the morning in the middle of the night, just being generally stinky and gassy. That's kind of what we, we contribute to, to the relationship there. And so I imagine you can figure out how I feel about newborns. At least newborns are cute, I guess. So, but anyway, as we start to think about this metaphor and the parallelism that we see, we think about new birth, like a birth of a baby. The very next thing we begin to kind of entertain in our minds are these, uh, is the notion of the idea of first steps. There's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of firsts that kind of get launched with the birth of a new baby. So we can think about a lot of these. There's the first cry, which the first cry at first is like, oh, the baby's doing well, they're alive, <clears throat> he or she is vibrant. And then three months later, it's like, would you stop already? I didn't know that crying could, that much crying could come out of a little human being. But so we've got things like uh, first cry, we've got first bottle or first feeding. We also have first soiled diaper, which is fantastic. I don't know what the whole, the repeated emphasis on like defecation is right now already, but stinkiness. But so we've got those, we've got first rollover, we've got first crawl, <clears throat> first smile. And then the one we all think about quite a bit actually is first steps. So as we begin to think this way, it, it, kind, of begs the, it kind of begs the following question. So if a person has come to experience the grace of God <clears throat> and has been born again or born anew and now has a relationship with Jesus, it begs this question. What is the first step after experiencing God's grace and coming into a relationship with Jesus? What is that first step? 
And I think actually from what the Bible says, the answer is rather surprising to us. The answer is pretty surprising, as, as it is for a lot of things in Scripture. We, we kind of get the shell shock in, in what we experience. The answer might surprise us, because I think where we naturally gravitate toward is, okay, <clears throat> I've received God's grace, his favor on my life, and now it's up to me. I've got to do something. And there are certain things that will, our mind will naturally gravitate towards. One of those things is, okay, so I, I have a relationship with Jesus. That's been launched. I've been birthed anew. Now I have to read and memorize a ton of the Bible. Because if I don't know the Bible, then I'm not going to be a good Christian. Some of us, it might go into the realm or the thought of prayer. Like, I have to cultivate now this prayer life where I'm somehow learning how to pray 24-7. Or for some of us, if you were like me when I was little, when I accepted God's grace and began a relationship with Jesus, I, I thought like, oh man, here, I'm going to have to sell everything that I have. I'm going to have to traverse a wide body, a, a, a broad body of water. I'm going to need to go to some third world country and be miserable for the rest of my life. So I, I think we, a lot of us, we, we sort of maybe gravitate to, to some of these things. We assume that the first step is going to be something that's arduous, hard, difficult, or excruciating. But actually, listen to a second uh, for what Jesus has to say is the very first step that one takes after experiencing the grace of God and coming into a relationship with Jesus. Matthew 28, <clears throat> we're gonna throw it up here on the screen. Matthew 28 says this, now Jesus is with his disciples, he's just been raised from the dead and he gathers them on a mountain and he's about to say something really important to them about this progression. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority <clears throat> in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the new birth kind of idea. Ready for what's next? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there is a teaching, there's an instruction, there's a growth, there's a maturity, there's this learning, but that's not the first thing. And then he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Baptism? Really? What's, what's going on here, Jesus? Jesus, what does... Someone going underneath the water a few times and coming out have anything to do with the first steps that one would take after coming to experiencing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I think in order to get our minds around this, <clears throat> I think I have a helpful il illustration of something that happened to me when I was younger. So when I was about nine years old, I was invited to my friend Russell's house for the very first time. Now, one thing you need to know about Russell is that he was a farm boy. Born and raised corn-fed, right? Russell was a farm boy. And, and the one thing you need to know about me is that I was a city boy. Now, well, I guess I should say at least I was a true suburbanite. I don't want to give you guys the impression that I have or ever have had any urban street cred to my credit there. So, so suburbanite, but yeah, okay, let's just call me a city boy for that. So Russell's a farm boy. I'm a city boy. And born and raised as a city boy, I had certain cultural like presuppositions about the way that life was lived. And nowhere were these cultural assumptions more, more pertinent or more pervasive, rather, than in the concept of doing chores and the effort that was required to do those chores. You see, when I was growing up, I had three primary chores, three primary responsibilities. One was, sorry, was dusting the furniture. Two was making my bed, and three was mowing the lawn. 
And if you, were on a, if you were a fly on the wall when I was growing up and you observed what I did in those three activities, there was nothing about what I did that would have been an acceptable definition of those things in any other part of the world. So for me, <clears throat> dusting was taking a bottle of pledge and a towel and wiping just the top of the wood furniture, just the top. You see, guys, you have to understand, back then, furniture didn't have wooden legs, just the top, you know, the part that people could see. And that would infuriate my mother, and I never understood why. Mom, it's the only part that they're really going to see, but nevertheless. And bed making, let's, let's just maybe dispense of that. Let's just say there were $20 a night hotel rooms that made beds better than I made my bed when, when I was growing up. And lawn mowing, let me just ask you guys a question. What is it about not overlapping <clears throat> the previous cut? You get those little mohawk rows of grass going on there. What is it about not overlapping that previous cut that pushes every single one of dad's angry buttons? <laughs> every single one. So here I am, picture me now. I've been invited over to Russell's house. I'm nine years old. And uh, like me, Russell had chores as well. The thing about Russell's chores was Russell was required to do those chores every single morning. So picture me with my bulging nine-year-old biceps. You can laugh at that, it's okay. With my bulging nine-year-old biceps and my understanding or my definition of the word chore, I'm heading over to Russell's house. I agreed to help Russell with his chores so that we could spend the rest of the day out in the fields shooting our BB guns at cow dung. Yes, cow pies. That's what we did for fun, apparently, back then. So we go to sleep that night, and we wake up the next morning at 5 in the morning. 5 in the morning. I, like, had to pry my eyes open that day. And I walked into Russell's barn, and I tell you what, the next, the next several hours was nothing less than being completely shell-shocked. I remember walking into his barn <clears throat> and asking questions of myself rhetorically. I didn't dare ask these questions of Russell. I didn't want him to think I was a pansy or something. I, I just remember asking myself, I, I have to pick up that pile of hay and put it where? I have to touch that cow where? Russell, and I just remember thinking, Russell, you are an alien. You are so strange. What is it? See, I thought like that Russell's entire family was alien at that point. I, I couldn't believe that Russell's parents would force him to do, would mandate that he would do all those kind of, of chores. And I remember driving away that day in my nine-year-old head, and I got home, and then me being a nerd back at that point in time, eh, me being a nerd, I decided I was going to look up the definition of the word chore. And here's what I found. I found that a, ch a chore is defined as a hard <laughs> or unpleasant task. And I'll tell you what, it was really in that moment I started to think back about my experience. And I thought, well, maybe I'm the one that's a little strange. Maybe what was on the surface very weird, bizarre, and peculiar to me wasn't all that much bizarre or peculiar in reality. And then I got to thinking, oh my goodness, it takes that amount of work every single day just so that I can have milk in my cereal in the morning. And so what was, again, initially perplexing or odd or strange at first started to become transformed in my mind, and I, my perspective on farming was forever changed. I have, a, I have an appreciation for any of you who are out there who are a farmer. I, I applaud you. What you do is amazing for all of us. 
But I think this story, <clears throat> what this does is it gives us a little bit of uh, what our approach, I think, is often to the concept of baptism. So I think that uh, what we have to do if we think about baptism and all that we bring to the table with it, what we really have to do is to start to sift past all our own presuppositions about what we think it is. And I think when we do, we begin to discover that there is an amazing richness and symbolism. There's a lot of profound things about baptism that's scattered throughout the entire scriptures. Yes, you heard me right, the entire Bible. You see, Jesus and his followers weren't inventing this baptism idea or this baptism act out of thin air. There truly is a very rich symbolism in baptism that stretches across the entire story of salvation that we find in the pages of the Bible. And I think then it becomes incumbent upon us to begin to trace some of the lineage of, this, of the core ingredients or the ideas or the imagery of baptism as we go back and find it in the scriptures. So what we're going to do very quickly here is uh, we're going to open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. And this is a spot that uh, I don't think the ideas or the core ingredients of baptism are any more vividly portrayed than in this spot. Exodus chapter 14, if you brought your Bible, you can go there. It'll be on the screen. If you didn't bring a Bible or if you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. You can go ahead and grab one of those. It'll be on page 48 in those Bibles. And uh, just for the record, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible or if you need an updated translation or version of the Bible, we just invite you to take the, one of the ones that's in, uh, beneath the seat in front of you. It's our gift to you, just a way of saying thanks for being here. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the single most epic moment in the history of the people of Israel. So it's, uh, what we're going to find here is this is something called the Exodus. It's basically the moment where the, the people of Israel who were enslaved to the, uh, the nation of Egypt were brought out of that enslavement and into, uh, into a relationship with God. So basically it's the day that God showed up and saved a people from slavery. Now, we talked about this a little bit with baptism. We need to rid ourselves, if we can, of some of the presuppositions that we have about baptism. But even as we go and dive into this text in particular, and this text will be about one pivotal moment, it's the crossing of the Red Sea. Even as we do that, we're gonna need to kind of do the same thing as well because we're jumping back into a culture that is very foreign from our own. And some of what we're gonna find there and the, the, the intent of the author there is gonna be very different. So just imagine this. We our city people right now, and we are all heading over to Russell's house here in Exodus 14, and we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit. So Exodus 14, again, this is the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, allow me to take just two seconds to give us a little bit of context as to what's happened already before we uh, jump into the actual crossing of the Red Sea. So um, in the previous book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we discover that uh, God decides to interact with this guy named Abraham. And he basically says that, hey, Abraham, through you and your descendants, you and your offspring, I am going to bring healing, wholeness, and restoration to the brokenness of creation that was caused by the fall of Adam and Eve, which is found even prior to that in Genesis chapter 3. So God begins to interact with Abraham. He's like, hey, through you and your descendants, I'm going to start fixing the brokenness of this whole thing. So as you come to the beginning of the book of Exodus, you discover very quickly that this promise of God to Abraham and his offspring is under a threat. What we discover there is that the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, are mired in a ruthless enslavement at the hands of the most powerful nation of that day, the nation of Egypt, and its principal tyrant, the Pharaoh. 
So that's what we're finding here as we approach the book of Exodus. And what God decides to do is he, the people are, are crying out to him. They're, they're saying, God, we're, we're just in pain. We're in distress. This hard labor feels like death. It's enslavement and death. And so the people cry out in anguish. And we read in Exodus that God hears them. And the way he decides to act is he decides to raise up this guy named Moses to be a leader for the people. And it would be through Moses, God's chosen agent, that God would lead the people out of slavery and into a kind of new life. So Moses gets raised up. He becomes God's spokesperson in front of Pharaoh, challenges Pharaoh. We discover that Pharaoh is very resistant to the idea of losing his slaves because economically it's going to damage him and his empire. So he resists. And then God proceeds that through Moses to send 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And it's plague after plague after plague, finally culminating in this last plague, which was so costly and culminative to Pharaoh's empire that Pharaoh just decides, I've had enough of this. My land is getting destroyed. My sons are dying. That was the last plague, was the death of the firstborn son. So my sons are dying. My land is in distress. Get out. So get out of here, Israel. And so Israel wanders about, uh, about two days away from Egypt, and they come up on this Red Sea, and Pharaoh decides he's changing his mind. And he gets real angry, and he decides to, to get his chariots, his horsemen, and all his horses, basically the, the bulk of his army, his mighty army, gathers them together and says to his generals, go get them, go get them. So here we find Israel the sea on one side and Pharaoh's mighty army on the other, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 10, and we may jump around a little bit, and I'll call that out. So verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. A couple days earlier, they're celebrating. Thank God that God sent Moses. And now it's like, I told you, Moses. We were better off back there in Egypt. I told you. You should have listened to me, Moses. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. And I love this part. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Check this out. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Wow. That's like a brave heart moment. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. I love actually what we read next because God's like, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but get a move on. <laughs> he says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? <laughs> like, why are you standing there? And then he says, tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. Let's skip to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians are relentless. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. Skip down to verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> Stretch out your hand over the sea. 
so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, none of them, none of them, none of them survived. Now, we have to get, our, we have to get a grip on this story. This was the epic moment in the history of of Israel. This is the moment that the Israelites later on down through their history, even all the way until today, Jewish people would look back to the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, as the formative moment in their history. Basically, they look back and they say the equivalent of, here, God took a loosely affiliated group of people who simply shared a common ancestor, and he drew them out of, the, out of slavery through water and into a brand new identity. This is the day that everything changed. We can't, we can't miss this. There is an out of and an into in this story, right? We have Israel here enslaved. God takes them through water and out into freedom. We see Israel was a ragtag group of people that really had no affiliation, no common identity. God takes them out of that through water and into being the very people of God. The condition of the people of Israel prior to their liberation was one that could only be characterized by death. They're dead-end people, going-nowhere people. God takes them out of that, don't miss it again, through the water and out into being alive with a brand new identity. This is the story that would be told and retold and retold and retold over and over and over again throughout Israel's history. So again, I think what's going to be helpful for us is I think there's like five main ingredients that we can just quickly see in this story that we would want to draw out. Let's throw those up in the PowerPoint here real quick. So you've got number one. Obviously, we've already kind of described it. We've got an initial slavery to Egypt and to Pharaoh. And then number two, we already mentioned this. God raises up a leader in Moses. Like God is always going to bring his people into freedom through one person, his representative, to lead them and help guide them out. We have a sacrifice that secured the release. One of the things we didn't talk about is that in order for Israel to leave the land of Egypt, there was something called that the Jews called the Passover, which is an angel of death was sent to pass over all these houses in Egypt and uh, to kill the firstborn son. There was a sacrifice that secured a release. Now, the people of Israel would actually sacrifice a lamb on that night as a means to kind of have that lamb stand in the place of their own firstborn sons so that they could be released. The idea is kind of like the, this word ransom. There's some kind of payment that needed to be made to secure a release. Number four, we see that there is a salvation into a new life in the Red Sea. Words like salvation and words like redemption, if you've ever heard of those, those are words that were developed through this story. So the people of Israel, anytime they heard the word salvation, anytime they heard the word redemption or ransom, immediately in their minds, they're going back to this formative moment where God called them out of death and brought them into a new life. And then finally, as we see that Israel has a new identity as God's people, there is a prophet later in the scriptures that will say, Israel, once you were not a people, and now you're the very people of God, he's referencing this event. So now Israel is a people. 
Now, one like overarching statement about what we can say about this Red Sea crossing in the Exodus is this, is that there is a real thematic destruction and burial of the old life. A real destruction and burial of the old life. And that there is a new identity for the people of Israel. To Catch this. That the old way of living and the powers that were over you in that old way of living cannot affect. Because remember what the author says. The chariots and the horsemen who are symbolic of Pharaoh's mighty power over Egypt. They're buried in the sea. So we have a new identity for the people of Israel that the old way of living can't affect because it is buried, buried underwater. Now, interestingly, if you know anything about Israel's history, this is not the only time where you get a parting of the waters moment. About 40 years after the crossing and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel comes to another body of water, the Jordan River, and they are about to, under the leadership of Joshua, who is the successor to Moses, They are about to enter into what's called the promised land. And it's called the promised land because, again, the promises were made to Abraham that he and his offspring would enter this land and that through them in this land, God was going to bring a rescue and a wholeness to his broken creation. So here's Israel on the other side of the Jordan River getting ready to enter in the land. Joshua puts his staff down and the waters part on the right and to the left. The first thing that you are thinking as a Jewish person in that moment is like, this has happened before. And all the themes and all the significance of what happened at the Red Sea is brought forth. And it would have been in their minds as they crossed over the Jordan on dry ground to enter into the land. They would have been, it would have been clicking with them. They would have been thinking, oh man, we're going out of an old way of living. We're going out of wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness, wrestling with God, trying to figure out what obedience looks like. We're going out of that old way of wandering in the wilderness, and we are about to enter into a new life with God in the land. So here's the picture that's set up for us. It can't be any coincidence. It's not by random chance that hundreds of years later, Jesus, in places like Matthew 3, comes down to the same Jordan River and submits himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus is not doing something random, weird, or avant-garde here. What's he doing? Jesus is picking back up the story of God's rescue and he's fulfilling it and infusing it with fresh, fresh meaning. So again, we have this idea that Jesus, in coming down here in this symbolic act and getting baptized, again, we've got this through the water thing, Jesus is getting baptized. What he's saying is is like, that all those through the water into freedom narratives of our heritage as Israel, all of them point directly to me. They're fulfilled by me, and I'm infusing them with fresh meaning. So that could still be a little fuzzy. Like, okay, I think I get where you're going, Seth, but I'm still not altogether sure. Let let me put it to you this way by by means of illustration. Do you guys remember about 15 years ago, there was that wildly popular movie, The Sixth Sense? You guys see that movie? Yeah, that's where we get that incessantly annoying line, I see dead people. (laughs) I see dead people. And by the way, that could only have been uttered by a little boy that way. Because you imagine another guy going to be like, I see dead people. 
That's not going to work there. But anyway, so spoiler alert, real quick, I'm going to give away the ending. If you haven't seen it, too bad. Um, but so in the sixth sense, if you, if you remember, if you follow the storyline, it's, uh, it's a story about uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis plays this character, and uh, he meets this, this little boy played by Haley Joe Osment. And he discovers very quickly that this little boy is able to see dead people. I see dead people, right? So um, Bruce Willis is trying to figure out what's going on with this boy and what's, what's happening with him and whether he's really able to see dead people or not. And as you walk through the movie, as you continue to watch it, like, things just seem to go from, like, one level of complexity and weirdness to another. Like, things just seem to get more strange and more strange and more strange, and you, you can't quite seem to figure it out. And you get toward the, end of the, end of the, uh, toward the end of the movie, and you're like, man, good old Bruce, he ain't gonna figure this one out. He was able to uh, slaughter, like, 600 people and die hard, but Bruce can't figure this one out. So we get to the end of the movie, and then suddenly, almost without warning, there's the shock that happens there is the plot twist. You guys remember this? The plot twist. Bruce Willis is dead. Oh, of course. Good. That's it. Bruce Willis is dead, of course. And then what, what do you do? You start to think back at all those moments previously that all the hints, all the foreshadows that point toward that plot twist, and you're like, of course that was happening there, and he was really dead there, and that's why his family wasn't interacting with him. What happens is, with the plot twist, everything else in the movie just starts to click into place. Everything just, like, clicks, right? And so even down to the point where then you go back and you watch the movie again, and you're like, of course! Bruce Willis is dead! Even the stuff that you didn't see the first time, you see again, and you're like, man, that makes a ton of sense. That's actually what's happening, not just with baptism, but really, guys, the whole entire Bible can kind of be summarized in this way. Here's a little freebie for you. If any of you struggle to understand the Bible, which I think many of us do, I mean, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll be the first one to, to raise my hand on that. If many of you struggle with the Bible, here's the freebie, but especially those of you who struggle with the Old Testament, because that gets really tough sometimes to try to like, what's going on here in the Old Testament? Here's the freebie, ready? In the Bible, Jesus is the plot twist. In the Bible, Jesus is the plot twist. Everything about the Bible, about these narratives that we just talked about, the Red Sea Crossing, the Jordan River, as well as a host of other things, all of that stuff just starts to click into place when Jesus is in view. Jesus coming down to the Jordan River is, his, uh, is an emblem of this. He's picking up the story of salvation from the Old Testament Exodus, and he's bringing it to a vibrant fulfillment in himself. Think about this. In the Old Testament, God brings a people through the water and into freedom, a people that is uh, an ethnic group in the Middle East at that time. In Jesus, it, it's all pointing to him, in Jesus, God is making that offer of salvation available to everyone. I don't think uh, anyone really picked up on this idea of Jesus being the plot twist, the means by which we understand what came before him, we understand what came during his ministry, and we understand what came after him. No one picked this up better than the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 6, we'll throw it on the screen, you don't need to turn there. Romans chapter 6 Listen to what Paul says about the significance of what Jesus did 
and the baptismal language that he starts to use. What shall we say then? In verse one, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Interestingly, when Paul's about to talk about baptism, he first talks about God's grace. That's what we were talking about at the, at, at the outset here. Verse three says, or don't, you, uh, or, don't, uh, sorry, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, that burial? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, by the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, our old identity, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, buried in the sea. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Do you see the language and the imagery that Paul is picking up from these Old Testament narratives? He's bringing it forward and saying, man, this is it. This is what Jesus has done. Now think about this. We're gonna throw those uh, five ingredients of the Exodus up on the screen here. Remember these? Now Paul's saying what happens here on the right is this. That back in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, there was a slavery and enslavement to Egypt and the Pharaoh. But here Paul is like, the real tyrant was not a Pharaoh. The real dominator was not Egypt. The problem of every human being, not just that ethnic group, in the Middle East. The problem of every human being is we are enslaved to sin and death. Enslaved to brokenness, living an old life that could only be characterized by using the language of death. In the Exodus account, there's a leader that emerges in Moses. But here we find Paul saying in Romans 6 that there is a leader that is available to the person that follows Jesus. It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who does this thing first. It says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus is the leader who went first, who died to sin and rose again so that those who place their faith in him can be promised to have that same thing happen because he's our representative, because we're united with him by faith. So there's a sacrifice that secured the release in the Exodus account. Jesus, who is also in the New Testament called the Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed for us, Jesus' sacrifice secures the release from sin and into a vibrant new relationship with God. There's a salvation through the Red Sea in the Exodus account. There is a salvation repeatedly over and over. The New Testament authors are saying that salvation has been secured, that we've come through the water because of Jesus' glorious resurrection from the dead into that new life. And then finally, Israel experienced a new identity as God's people where they weren't before. Simultaneously, there is a new identity in Christ as God's people for those that follow him. So check this out. Let's, let's bring this back to baptism. When a person is baptized, in effect, they are being plunged into the story of God's salvation that was clearly articulated in the person of Jesus, in his death and in, and in his resurrection. It can't be then any secret too that the word baptized was the word that was used in Jesus and Paul's day to describe when you would take a cloth that you wanted to look a different color, 
you would take that cloth and you would plunge it or baptize it in a colored dye. And as you plunge that thing and you baptize it in a colored dye, when you pulled that thing out of the water, now that cloth would be the color. You couldn't separate the color from the cloth. They're one. They're unified. They're the same. What can be said about one, the cloth, can be said about the other, purple. They are indeed one. And so this is baptism, everybody. Baptism is a declaration that the old life of sin has been thrown into the sea. It's buried underwater. And that a new way of life has dawned all because Jesus' own death and his own resurrection have been applied to his followers because they are one with him by faith. One with him by faith. This is amazing imagery. Baptism is not something that saves a person. That's clearly only done by God's grace. But when we start to survey this amazing lineage of what's going on here and the significance of baptism, what are we saying? We're saying that the person who has made a commitment to follow Jesus with their life has passed from death, now lives a new and vibrant life where God makes it possible to grow and mature in that life as a person follows Jesus and dedicates their whole life to him. That all that has been applied to us because we are now united with Jesus. Baptism, going public, is simply a person's next, their first step after experiencing the grace of God and coming into a relationship with Jesus. And the step is not arduous or hard. All Jesus asks of us is to own the story. To take a step forward, to raise the hand, and say, I've committed my life to Jesus. And the next, the next road, the next thing I'm doing all the way through my life is going to communicate and retell the story of his death for my sin and his resurrection giving me the breath of new life. As the band comes up, we are going to uh, just kind of shut this thing down, but I, I wanted to give you guys an encouragement that one of the things that we've been trying to do here at the Medina East Campus is to uh, get baptism into a weekend service environment so we can have somebody who has placed their faith and has committed their life to Jesus Christ and wants to own the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, an opportunity to take that step forward, to basically raise their hand, to get baptized, and to go public with that reality. So what we're going to do is we've added uh, to our Connect card, you'll see it if you uh, got one of your programs as you walked in. On our Connect card, we have a new uh, box that you can check that says, I want more information on going public and being baptized. So here's what we're gonna do. If that's you, if you have made a commitment to follow Jesus, if you have experienced the grace of God and you're acknowledging that Jesus has brought you out of death and given you a new birth, your first baby's cry is going public. And I want to urge you, like I plead with you as much as I possibly can, that if that's your commitment, if you've never been baptized, I want you to mark ahead, I want you to go ahead and mark that box, place it in the, uh, the basket as it comes around at the end of the service, or take this to the Welcome Center and submit it to those, those folks there. But this is you taking that step of saying, Jesus' story is my story. His death is my death. His life is my life life and I have the ability and the power because of his death and resurrection to live that life in following him.
Um, another segment of our population here, maybe today, you, you haven't experienced the grace of God and you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus. You're still checking this thing out. You're still trying to figure out what's going on and you're, you might be skeptical or you might just be averse to the whole thing. I, I wanna challenge you as we sing and as the band plays and as we worship together and as we reflect on some of these significances of baptism, I wanna challenge you to think through these things as we sing. And maybe for you today, it's that moment where you're like, man, my life, like the Israelites, could only be characterized by deadness. I, I'm basically, I'm going nowhere. It's a dead-end life. I'm, I'm addicted to all these things, and I'm, I'm just going nowhere. I want to encourage you to wrestle with God and to see if even today in light of this beautiful portrait that baptism shows of the grace of God and of an offer of a new life that Jesus gives us, I want to encourage you to wrestle with that and maybe just experience grace for the first time. All it takes is a, yeah, Jesus, I'm done living my life the old way. It's only ever been characterized by sin and death. And I want to engage in the new life that you offer to me. So again, those are our audiences. I want to encourage you to come back next week. Uh, Pastor Tony is going to uh, connect us a little further with some of the more, more like FAQ kind of stuff, why we do baptism in a certain way that we do, and some other uh, ideas of baptism we're going to use to conclude the series. But it is my hope, if you check that box, we want to be baptizing people next week during weekend services so that we can all celebrate this owning of the story for those who have decided to make that decision. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, God, thank you so much, Lord, for the, for the leader that you gave us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father, for dying the death that you did for our sin, to put away the old life, to bury it, to put it as far in the sea as we can think about. And Jesus, thank you, Lord, for undergoing that death and thank you for rising from the dead rising from the grave to connect our hearts with this imagery that you desire those who place their faith in you to experience their own crossing of the Red Sea moment to experience the real and true spiritual exodus from sin and into a vibrant flowing life with you forever Jesus, I pray for every single person here, regardless of where we're at, regardless of whether we don't know the grace of God that's extended to us because of who you are. If we do and we've never been baptized and we're being challenged to own that story publicly, or if we have been following you for a while and God, we've been baptized, but we need to be reminded again of the fresh life that you've offered us. Jesus, I pray that you would do the work by your spirit that needs to be done in each and every one of our individual hearts as we sing, as we pray as we respond to you in the message that you wanna give us this morning. But above all of that, Lord, wherever we're at, help us by your spirit to just take the next step, whether it's the first step or it's the 627th step in our lives of growing closer to you and embracing the life that you freely offer to us by your grace. Father, again, it's only by your grace and we are so thankful for that grace that we can experience the life and the exodus from sin that you've offered to us. Jesus, help us, Lord, as we wrestle with this now in conclusion. In your name we pray.